This is no ordinary sub shop. This is Firehouse Subs. Welcome to Firehouse. Tired of overpriced lunches that underdeliver on flavor? Head to Firehouse Subs, where for a limited time you can get a $4.99 choice sub. Choose from a medium smoked turkey, Virginia honey ham, or roast beef. They're custom-made hot subs at a price ready-made to make you smile. Just $4.99, only at Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs, save more lives. Participating locations plus tax limited time offer prices may vary for delivery. Infirmary Media. In decades, the Matrix of Blade versus Bloodsport and Renegade. Strap on that cap, bust out the power glove. Come fight for what you love. Who culture popping pins, dropping hand grenades? Van Halen locked in Mortal Kombat with David Gray. Found out ballet and sick. I am made of GNR. Come fight for what you love. Broadcasting from the Infirmary Media Studios, it's the adult-only retro game show where the 80s and 90s do battle because it's your history. We just fight for it. Welcome back to Dueling Decades. Let's take a look at this week's duelers and the decades they will be fighting for. First off, the challenger. Hey guys, this is Drew Zachman, the host of the One Headlight 90s podcast, and I am talking today about the week of January 5th to the 11th from 1997. And his opponent, he is the reigning Dueling Decades champion, a 42-year-old podcaster from New York, please welcome Man Crush. I'm actually 41, motherfucker, but uh, <laughs> thanks for speeding that up for me. Uh, yeah, it's me and my buddy Jameson over here to the right. We're uh, we're playing with this one. We have uh, January 7th through the 14th of 1989. All right, it's on. And as always here on the show, we need somebody to adjudicate all of this awesomeness. So for this week experience battle, I, Mark James, shall once again sit behind the bench and serve as your jovial judge. Kelly Maroney was supposed to be here tonight. I just want to throw that out there. She got called to the set tonight and had to cancel on us again. So we've moved it once again from November to January. And now she's going to be on uh, February 20th or something like that. No harm, no foul. We no. got Mark here. Mark's going to fucking judge this shit. She did tell us that shooting wraps up in a few weeks, so she gave yeah. us some dates. We're still planning on having her come in. So, But we do have Robert Tepper coming in two weeks, and he's excited. He's ready to come back. So, All right, ladies and gentlemen, the following contest will be held under Dueling Decades rules. The judges' coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five Dueling Decades categories. Movies, television, Music, news, and hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. And the winning decade shall be decided by the highest overall score after all five rounds. You know, life moves pretty fast, duelers. If you don't stop to look around once in a while, you could miss this all-new episode of... Dueling Decades. All right, guys. So, for tonight's official toss-off, I'm going to take a page out of a former judge's book. We had a, a loyal listener of the show on, Jenna Drolette, and she had flipped a Pog Slammer. So, I actually have oh. a Pog Slammer here tonight. It is a clear plastic slammer. It says, Happy Day on it. And I have 20 pogs stacked up in front of me 
First person to guess how many I flip without going over wins the coin toss. Give me a guess of how many you think I'm going to flip. I'm going to slam it. Three. Seven. Seven exactly. Wow. He's on fire. That's because I wasn't here last week, and I'm fucking rested. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Damn. That was was a good one. All right, Man Crush. You have control of the board. What category would you like first? All right. Well, I'm going to do something that I don't think has ever been done before, because I don't remember. It probably has been, but I don't know. Whatever. Uh, I'm going to go music first. Have we ever had music first? Yeah, last episode. Oh, fuck. Well, I wasn't here. So <laughs> <laughs> All right, so here we go. Uh, once again, I got uh, January 7th to the 14th, so we're going January 10th, 1989. And uh, this deceased musician, he still garners over 4 million plays a month on Spotify. And I always kind of thought of him as like a cult success, especially as a solo artist. But 4 million plays a month is pretty damn solid. And if you counted his work from the 60s with his band Velvet Underground, you would add another 3 million a month. Pretty damn stout numbers for Mr. Lou Reed. Uh, Well, on January 10th, 1989, he released his 15th solo album entitled New York. Uh, It happens to be an album that Rolling Stone hailed as the 19th best album of the decade. Fucking random ass number. Uh, and of course, we're talking about uh, the 80s, of course. Uh, a lot of people, I, I looked this up online, a lot of people said this album is the best of his career. Some of the songs are the best of his career. But I'm going to be 100% honest with you guys. I don't get it. To me, it sounds like a dude talking through music. And I like punk. And I don't know, like Velvet Underground maybe more. But like this... I don't know. It's not my thing. I'm sure I pissed off some Reed fans, but tell me what I'm missing. Go to our Facebook. Tell me what I'm missing. Is it all about the lyrics? If this wasn't the weak experience, 100% honest, I probably would not have selected this album, but to each his own, uh, it did sell roughly 1 million copies worldwide. It had three singles, including Romeo and Juliet, Dirty Boulevard, and Busload of Faith. Mr. Lou Reed. Are you a Lou Reed fan? I am not. I'm not a big... I had one Lou Reed album growing up. I think it was Transformer. Same one everybody had. Right. Just not a... He couldn't get into it. I think it's the same thing that you had. It's talking over punk and... It yeah, just not my remi- bad. Yeah, it's like a punk version of Bob Dylan. Yeah, no. No, yeah, that doesn't sound good, <laughs> yeah, man. Like, yeah, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Maybe it was Bo that liked Lou Reed. I don't know, but Slim Pickens, it's the weak experience, you know? I was always, I was always a fan of uh, Rollins' band. Yeah, but he did it a different way because he could scream too. That was like angry Lou Reed. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, way. (laughs) Oh, Henry, Henry was definitely angry. Yeah, and that was actually our culmination. Our first trivia culmination of this week was uh, Henry Rollins. Props out to Brian Moreno for getting that. And if you haven't done it yet, go over to our Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Dueling Decades. Get in on the trivia now. We reset all the scores. They're low. Everybody's. You're right in it. Even if you just start now, you're in it. Uh, Monday, Tuesday, first culmination of the week. Wednesday, all you got to do is listen to the episode and tell us who won each round. You get 20 points. You're already listening to the episode. And then Thursday and Friday, you got your second culmination of the week. If you get the whole culmination, how many points is it, Mark? 50. 50, that's right. And the audio trivia is 20. So there's lots of ways to get these points. Every day, five points on our Facebook story. Go there. 
and start it. Everyone's doing this shit. You should too. Anyhow, January 10th, 1989, my second pick. You know, I, I realized when I was doing this, I don't pick music singles often. And I realized as I was trying to dig these things up, but man, there's some fucking gold if you were to look at singles over albums. And I think I'm going to start to look more this way sometimes. One song, think about it this way. One song could be far greater of an impact than an entire album. And in this case, I think it is, even though this album is pretty fucking amazing too. So you got a seven minute and 27 second Metallica song that came from 1988's Injustice for All. (laughs) So good. Uh, It was the last single to be released from that amazing album. And if you weren't a thrash metal fan in the 80s, I hear this a lot where people aren't really metal fans and they're like, oh, I got into Metallica when Enter Sandman came on MTV, you know, it was all over the place for me. At 11 years old, one was that song because that was their first fucking video and that shit hit hard. You know, you came out, you heard uh, the whole beginning with the artillery and the helicopters and it's all black and white and they got uh, Johnny got his gun on there and then they're switching back and forth between them playing in that like a empty warehouse. It's so sick. That video is amazing. It's fucking great. It's classic. We actually put up and asked on our Facebook page this past week what people's favorite, or maybe it was two weeks ago when it was um, Ulrich's birthday, which favorite Metallica song. And a lot of people, I'd say more than 50%, had one is that song. So I was was happy to actually see that. Uh, The single ended up selling about 500,000 copies going gold, which is not bad for a fucking thrash metal band in 1989. So those are my two picks. That that song is so good. That whole album and Justice for All. That's probably my. Uh, so the Black Album is what turned me on to them because right. uh, when the when that came when the Black Album came out, I think I was ten or eleven. That was what ninety one. I think it was right. Yep. So I was eleven when that came out, and I was like just starting to because at that time I was like you know eleven. I'm like listening to kind of like whatever was on a radio, but that was getting some pretty serious radio plays. So I was like, oh, this is kind of cool it's not like what i've heard before and then i started started listening to it i love the black album and then then at that point i started going back and then i went to justice and then puppets and then lightning and, and kill them all and all those albums were i mean i was hooked i mean that that band is so freaking good and exactly. justice the entire justice album is uh it just like blew my mind uh at 11 years old dude i saw the one yeah. video and i had it would give parents- you like nightmares <laughs> <laughs> I had my parents buy me the cassette single and I still remember the B side was the Prince on the cassette single. And then I saved up my own money and I ended up buying and justice for all. And then I got ride the lightning and I, I was like, I was hooked until load and reload came yep. out. And then I kind of, yeah, it's those. So it's a different, it's, it's a it's different, different heavy. Uh, well, so two things. One, I think if you take load and reload and actually just make that one album, that'd be a damn good album. Um, I think that would have helped their cause, but I I think you could be heavy and not go like a hundred miles. You can be, you know, heavy, go a hundred miles an hour like they had done before, but you can also be heavy and go slow with your just with your finger up in the air. Like that's what they would do. So either way, I think they were heavy. Just here's the big difference for me. I think was these albums, like when you're talking about Justice for All, Ride the Lightning and all that, these are albums, Master Puppets, the entire fucking album from beginning to end, you could listen straight through it. When oh, yeah, I got for to sure. load and reload, I can only listen to a song 
skip, go to another song. So to me, those are albums I threw away. So this fucking single though, this got me into it. And I think it got a lot of other people into it. What do you have for 1997? Um, so 1997, boy, that, uh, and just for all is a tough one. Um, all right. So I'll do this. So January 7th, we were given a gift of the wonderful new year. Uh, one we had not seen before. Uh, that gift, sirs and ma'ams, uh, would eventually help uh, in the soundtracks of our lives. And that day, the major label debut, Enjoy Incubus, was released upon the world. Uh, and of course, that was by Incubus. Uh, that album was just a six-song EP debut, but it put them on the map. Uh, you know, next they released uh, my personal favorite album, Science. Uh, that album is fantastic. It's probably the heaviest of the albums that they've done. That's probably why I liked it so much. Uh, but then after that, we got Make Yourself, which everybody likes, and right, rightfully right. so. It's so good. And then Morning View 2001, after which I pretty much kind of stopped listening to them after that. But As did everybody else. And- <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, I mean, enjoy Incubus. Like, I've, I've listened to it before. Like, it's okay. Uh, it's not bad. But um, you, can, you can see kind of like uh, some of the funk element in there. Uh, not Maybe not as much of the heavy as you would hear like in science. But it was still, it was still decent. But, you know, it, it it showed, like, who these guys were. There was definitely some potential. Uh, but, I mean, science, I mean, that album's so good. Yeah, New Skin, Certain Shade of Green, Redefine, uh, Vitamin, Idiot Box. Uh, that album is amazing. And then Make Yourself, I mean, you have Privilege, uh, The Warmth. I mean, they're Stellar and Drive. Like, those are probably their two biggest hits. Probably Drive is probably their biggest. Uh, Pardon Me. Pardon uh, Me. So good. Uh, Incubus, I've seen them live, I would say, like, four or five times. Roughly around that time frame, like late 90s, early 2000s. Um, I think I saw them open for Deftones twice. And then I saw, I think they're on tour with 311 and Taproot. So uh, they always put on a really Dude, good I show. I loved Taproot back then. Yeah, I don't oh, they were hijack amazing. hijack your pick, but that's fucking, fine. <laughs> God damn, I loved Taproot at the time. Fucking I. God. Oh, yeah. I haven't listened to that in a while. Anyhow, that, sorry. Was that that album, Gift, was really good. Um, I've seen Taproot live like four or five times. Um, but yeah, uh, Make Yourself was listed on the 1001 albums you must hear before you die. Uh, that album sold over 2 million copies. And Incubus, they're, they're still popular. They have over 4 million monthly listeners on Spotify. Drive is their most popular one on there with 244 million streams. So, you know, while this album was, you know, didn't have those songs on there, it was, you know, it was the precursor to what Incubus would do. And I feel like they kind of ruled the music scene for a while. I think it was like, like a good three year run. Like you couldn't listen to a radio station without hearing one of their songs on there. So that's what I got for my first pick January 7th. Enjoy Incubus. I remember that they were on this show on MTV where it was called like, you think, you know, I think that's what the name of the show was. You think, you know, and there was a promo for it and they were going to be on it. And it was the fucking, uh, the, I don't know if he's a guitarist or the fucking bassist, wherever he's got like an Afro. Oh, Mike Einziger, the guitarist. Yeah. He goes, you think, you know, but I have diarrhea. (laughs) (laughs) Forever. I'll always fucking remember that. Kudos. I love how that's (laughs) a key takeaway. (laughs) All right, Drew, what do you got for your second music selection? All right, pick number two, same day, January 7th, 1997. Uh, That day, we all learned that if you want my future, uh, you need to actually forget my past. And if you want to get with me, you're you're probably going to want to make it fast. And we also found out what I really, really want, which apparently was to zig a zig ah. (laughs) I've never figured out what the fuck a zig a zig ah was. (laughs) I think that means to get your salad tossed. Oh, uh, yeah, I don't want to figure that out. Oh, dear God. 
anyway, uh, that's the uh, Spice Girls. They released the single for Wannabe. So I am also tapping into that single uh, uh, pool there. Yeah. And, and that's better because I almost selected that album, which was from a late 96 somewhere in a, in a previous episode. And I, I don't remember if I did it or not, Mark. It was on a tag, one of our tag matches. And I, I don't know if I did select it, but I, if it was that one song, I feel like the one song is so much larger than the actual album itself. Yeah. Well, yeah, because it's because it's, it's like one for one. It's you know batting a thousand at that point. If you have like yeah. the album, there's like maybe three or four good songs <laughs> I don't on even there. Know what you know, other but fucking songs they sing. Uh, it's the uh, it's the other one that they sing. <laughs> that song. The song with the girls, with the arms, and they and they dance, but yeah. So so that one uh, topped the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 for four weeks. Uh, you, you, again, you couldn't go anywhere without hearing this song. Um, at that time, "Wannabe" was the best-selling single by a girl group in the world, with over four million copies sold just between the U.K. and U.S. Over seven million copies worldwide by the end of 1997, and uh, uh, showing the. Uh, the legs that this one has in a 2014 study, this song was chosen as the most easily recognizable pop song of the past 60 years. So, uh, and if you want some numbers, I'll give you some well, I, I can tell you, I can tell you why it's actually because a lot of people lost their hearing yes. after the song or they gouged their eyes out. Really? <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of that. It was like Ebola of the ears and eyes. Yeah. Actually, not the eyes so much. See, they were good. They were pretty decent. This to look isn't at. the worst song out there. I mean, I've heard worse. <laughs> nah, nah. I'm just playing around. It's uh, it's actually not that bad. It's yeah. I I'm like I I wasn't into you know this is like '97, so I was like 16. So I was 16 when this came out, and uh, I was like listening to like Fear Factory and similar stuff. Then yeah, you yeah very you similar. You would just sneak um, this one in when your friends were not around, right? I'm like, is is everybody gone? Okay, <laughs> damn it, Steve. What are you doing over there? I thought you'd left. <laughs> <laughs> I was mocking it. Thank God I didn't have social media back then. Boy, that would have been a mess. <laughs> um, but uh, no, I mean this song. This song is not terrible. There's like way worse songs that like uh, the Macarena. I want to. Oh God. Choke, I want to like choke people. Um, <laughs> uh, Mambo number five. Uh, there, there, there's there's definitely some some way worse songs out there. Yeah, absolutely. Over on our Dueling Decades Spotify account, we actually have an account where we get a bunch of playlists up there. One of the more recent playlists we put out, we posted it in our Facebook group, was uh, all the whack songs you could think of from the <laughs> 80s and 90s. And it had all of the songs you just mentioned on there. <laughs> <laughs> they are, they are in fact, whack. All right. So I guess we got to get to the judgment for the music round here. It went a little bit longer than normal because it's music. You need to give music a little props. So that's why. We like music. Yeah, it happens. All right. So we got... Not the best Incubus album versus not the best Lou Reed album. Well, some people said it was the best. Yeah, I'm sure. But... <laughs> not me. I, I, I wasn't one of them. We haven't found those people yet, but we're sure they're no, out there. No, I, I swear to God, if I say it, then it's been said multiple times. But I just, on this one, I don't get it. I don't. So also we got the Spice Girls with Wannabe versus Metallica 1 kind of going to match those two up because they were both singles and they were both huge hits for each respected groups so you know what it's kind of a tough one on this one because the spice girls was a huge sensational hit for them and that kind of propelled that group into stardom as sad and sick and disgusting as that is but uh overall 
I don't think that's the best Lou Reed album, and I don't think that's the best Incubus album. It's certainly not my favorite, but The Power of Metallica 1, that is just a monumental single, and both of you just said how great that song was and how not listenable Wannabe was. So based on that alone, I got to give the first point to 1989. Man Crush, you have control of the board. That was the only point I was going to get this whole game. I'm like, I'm like, where am I going to maybe score some points? I'm like, oh, music. I got that one. Oh, nope. man. Here's a tip. If you're going to pick something in music, <laughs> don't say how horrible it is, too. Well, I, I, never, I, I, I never said Wannabe was horrible. I did. I told him Wannabe was horrible, but I didn't think... Listen, that Lou Reed thing, he's got lots of fans. People dig that music. It's not my thing. Just like when you did the fish thing a couple weeks ago, that's not my thing. So I'm going to be honest about it. And eh, I just, I tried, I listened to it again. I was just like, eh, I don't get it. (laughs) But okay, it's somebody's thing. But anyhow, that was a fun round. Let's go to a boring round. I'm going to news for round two. All righty. All right. And I'm going to start off with... A news story from January 13th, 1989. I'm going to read you the story. Here we go. A Friday the 13th virus struck personal computers in Britain on Friday. And what experts said may have been a new manifestation of a computer virus that originated in Israel. Hundreds of personal computer users found the virus was programmed to delete files on Friday the 13th, said Alan Solomon, managing director of SNS Enterprises, a data recovery center in Chisholm. Quote unquote, it's been frisky, and hundreds of people, including a large firm with over 400 computers, have telephoned with their problems. Several U.S. computer security experts said they have not received any reports of the virus that have cropped up stateside. The virus bore many characteristics of one that had been programmed to go off Friday, May 13, 1988 the day before the 40th anniversary of the establishment of the State of Israel. The virus was first noticed at Hebrew University in Jerusalem and later spread to Europe. Security experts said it was logical that the virus was set to go off on Friday the 13th. Blah, 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 blah. I'll get to the end here. The, The fucking thing with this story, and this is the reason I did it, apparently some experts back then would suggest changing your system clock and I remember this, so that your computer would actually avoid ever having a Friday the 13th. So what these people wanted you to do, and this is what they would say in 1989, which is far fucking different from today, they would say, just go into your date settings and just eradicate the date. Just go to Saturday. And on Saturday, set it back. I feel like I remember that. Yeah, yeah. I remember but that. But here's the fucking problem with that. It's still resident in your memory. Right. So it's still taking up memory. It's still doing shit. It's reducing memory on your machine every year, whatever the fuck it's doing. We don't do that now. Now we try to nip it before it happens or eradicate the motherfucker entirely. So I just threw that out there because it's such a difference in 31 years of the thinking that went on in IT back then was like, oh, yeah, we'll just skip the fucking day. But we'll be fine. <laughs> and nowadays we don't. The, the shit's way worse now. We would never do that. But anyhow, that was my uh, my bullshit story. Let's get to the other story. January 11th, 1989, at the Paris Chemical Weapons Conference, diplomats from more than 140 nations condemned the use of chemical weapons 
and called for a stepped-up effort to complete a treaty banning the development and possession of such weapons. The declaration, issued after five days of occasionally stormy debate, banned the use of chemical weapons in war. It declared support for using the United Nations Security General's Office to conduct investigations of suspected chemical weapons use. The conference was called at the initiative of the United States because of their concerns raised over the use of poison gas by Iraq and, to a lesser extent, Iran in their eight-year war, which the, uh, actually had a ceasefire in 1988. But no nation was singled out for criticism in the final document, given that the ground rules that the agreement was to be by consensus, in effect giving every nation a veto over the document. And I just want to throw this out there. A Soviet foreign minister announced at that Paris Chemical Weapons Conference that the Soviet Union planned to begin destruction of its chemical weapons stockpile upon completion of a uh, destruction facility. So that was huge. I mean, we're talking about the Cold War. We're, this is still 1989. We still had like another two years of the Cold War. So this is a big fucking deal. And I just want to throw this out about chemical weapons. If you ever wondered how many chemical weapons we have as a nation. I'm talking about the United States. The United States agreed in 1991 to stop creating and basically dispose of our entire stockpile. They're going to be finished destroying those chemical weapons by the end of 2023. Let me just throw this out there. I found another news article. They actually started under Reagan and started destroying them in 1985. Whoa. So like 40 years to get rid of everything. How many do they do a day? That's what I'm wondering. Like, <laughs> it's the government, man. Yeah. It's the government. <laughs> they Who knows? Quota. Yeah, they got. It's people got to keep jobs. You know how it goes. It's like working on the highway. You know, well, it can't be <laughs> easy though, because yeah. I'm. You know, it's it's not like it's not like I'm like going through my house and throwing out some old like tax papers. You know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're not going to kill anybody unless they try eating it and then they choke. You can't just put it in the recycling bin. <laughs> hey, Barry, take this home. Put it in your backyard, man. Just yeah, so you, you gotta you gotta handle them carefully. So I can understand how it could take a what while. What do I do with this uranium? Turn it into a time machine. I don't fucking know. Here, put it in this metal canister. You know, right. after like it's a huge news story, but at the end of it, I was like, I have to find out how many we actually have and how the process is going. And when I found that out, I was like, wow, okay. So that's how many are out there. Just uh, open some eyes. That's a nice way of saying we're going to destroy our chemical weapons, but still keep all of our chemical weapons. <laughs> we're going to delete a couple or delete. We're going, yeah, it was we're going as fast as we can, guys. <laughs> One, They're going by half-life over there. Which will last longer, chemical weapons or a McDonald's hamburger? Let's find out. <laughs> maybe that's why it's taking so long. Ah, oh, maybe. Fucking McDonald's. Wait, they're not they're not a sponsor, I hope, are they? No, not yet. Not yet. Okay. okay. Sorry. <laughs> they're so good. It's so healthy. All right, Drew, let's go over to you for the news <laughs> round. All right. So I have January tenth, nineteen ninety-seven. Uh somebody everybody knows, everybody remembers this story. Arnaldo Aleman was sworn in as president of Nicaragua, a post he would hold until January two thousand two. Uh, and then in 2003, he was convicted for money laundering, embezzlement, and corruption. So he seemed like a nice guy. And it's something you just don't normally see in a leader of a country. Uh, I this That might be the first time I've read something like it. But uh, he was sentenced to a 20-year prison term in Transparency International. This is what kind of really made me want to call this out. 
Transparency International named him the ninth most corrupt leader in recent <laughs> history. Like right. that's insane. Like so, like number one, they had uh, Mohammed Suharto from who was the president of Indonesia in the sixties up until the nineties. They embezzled like up to like thirty five billion dollars. Dubs <laughs> Slobodan uh, Milosevic uh, from Serbia, Yugoslavia. Yep. He he like embezzled about a billion dollars. So those are the types of people that are on this list and killed a million people. Well, that too. Yeah, yeah. Now, is this a current list, or should this list be updated? Uh, well, <laughs> this, so this was this is from 2004. That's when this okay. report was done. So if you, I mean, if you updated it now, uh, he probably wouldn't crack. He wouldn't be on the top 10. He'd be in the top 15, 20. Um, so yeah, and I didn't. Again, I didn't really know. That's why I love this podcast. I learn shit. It's so <laughs> yeah. good. And and the <laughs> listeners, they're like, oh, I was unaware of this Arnando Aleman. I'm I can tell my friends all about this. Yeah, so uh, January tenth, nineteen ninety seven, one of the most corrupt people uh, in the world. At least world. top ten. At that uh, point. Yeah, back in two thousand four, uh, one of the most corrupt people in the world uh, took power in Nicaragua. So that's kind of a big deal. Moving on, actually, kind of moving back a little bit to January seventh, nineteen ninety seven, uh, Newt Gingrich narrowly was reelected as Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. One of the things I remember about him mostly was he was just a great dream. hair. Oh. Well, that too. I think he was more a douche canoe. Uh, <laughs> that was his official title, douche canoe. That's his official title. Yeah, the speaker of the douche canoes. Um, <laughs> uh, oversaw the passage by the House of Welfare on reform and capital gains tax cut in 1997. He also played a key role in several government shutdowns and impeached President Clinton on a party line vote in the House. Now, Gingrich would eventually resign from the speakership on November 6, 1998, and then ultimately from the House altogether January 3rd, 1999, namely due to the poor showing by Republicans in the 98 congressional elections, uh, a reprimand from the House for Gingrich's ethics violation, pressure from the Republican colleagues in general, and revelations of an extramarital affair with a congressional employee, 23 years his junior, which, again, that is something that is unheard of. Uh, so I don't know. <laughs> Nobody in the late 90s was doing that in it uh, must, political it, office. It was, I'm assuming that was purely speculative because <laughs> uh, politicians don't just do those types of things. Uh, now, and here's and here's why. I mean, I think a lot of people remember Gingrich, especially around that time. But still now, he's still a voice now. Uh I found this interesting, and again, this is why this podcast is so interesting. So you like find stuff that you might not have known. This reelection or his reelection uh, was crucial as political scientists have actually credited Gingrich with playing a key role in undermining political decorum in the United States and hastening political polarization and partisanship. If you look kind of where we are now, like that's where we are. And looking back, I mean, I was sixteen when this happened, so I knew some of this stuff but maybe like i wasn't as in tune to it as i would be now just because i'm older and that's and that's what i pay attention to now but you know that's that's a big statement to make to say like where how things are now essentially he was the kind of person he was he was the person who brought us here through his uh through his election i don't like to get so, too political because i hate fucking politics but has there ever been a speaker of the house that wasn't a giant douche uh, most of them are, I think. Yeah, I think. Is do you have to be a giant douche to be a speaker of the house? Mm, not, uh, I mean, I, I haven't checked the uh, the job posting on Indeed, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it must be on I'll, there. It must be like on the bottom. Like, I'll must have at least eighteen years of douchiness under. Your yeah, belt it's like uh, must must have a bachelor's degree, <laughs> ten years of uh, equivocal uh, experience, and uh, he must be a giant douche. So. <laughs> 
Uh, maybe it's there. I don't know. I'll have to check it out. Ah, uh, fucking news of 97. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I got. All right, Mark, off to you for the judgment. All right, guys, let's take a look at this news round. You know, we got uh, Shady Armando down in Nicaragua. <laughs> <laughs> He's a rapper, it sounds like. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's what all his friends called him. And uh, Shady Newt Gingrich. Shady Arnaldo. <laughs> you know, and then we're going to match it up against uh, what Man Crush had in 1989, the Friday the 13th virus. Now, is that still a thing? Does it, Is that a virus that's still around? No, that... that- specific one i'm sure has been completely eradicated since then with what we have now but back then into the early 90s it was a pretty decent deal because back then too people weren't putting antiviruses on their machines so i don't have to set my clock back or anything no no no. you you're fine (laughs) there's other bullshit uh if you know you go on all the porn sites you go to and stuff and the uh the pictures you send me for uh for facebook posts (laughs) That might get you in trouble. I got to clear that browser history. Thanks for reminding me. Shit. All right. So you had that and the Paris Chemical Weapons Conference. God, that was such a great time, man. I remember when we all went down. No. Okay. But yeah, it's really fucked up that it's taking that long to destroy all those chemical weapons. You'd think you'd be in a hurry. And what shocked me most about this story is that it took until 1989 for them to at least say, we should probably not use chemical weapons. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. They they were talking about it for years when I was looking at it through the research, but it took to 89 to get that sit down with all the nations and really do this. So. Well, two world wars wasn't enough. No. Nah. So in the time that we decided chemical weapons are a bad idea and we should destroy them, between deciding that and actually having no chemical weapons, Crystal Pepsi has gone and come back twice. <laughs> Priorities, people. I Seriously, I hope it comes back and stays. It's the, it's the best drink. I would, I, I would give up drinking alcohol if Crystal All Pepsi right, come would on, come let's back. Let's be real. <laughs> I'm, what? I'm not joking. I love it. It's so good. I miss it. All right, so I guess I got to give a ruling on this round. Wow, and this is a tough one. Uh, man, do you have 140 countries banning chemical weapons against Newt Douche Kinkrish? <laughs> I'm not even gonna say his name right. I'm just gonna fuck it up. Arnaldo. <laughs> it's Arnaldo though. Shady Arnaldo, man. Shady Arnaldo. <laughs> he has that song of Fifty Cent. Oh wait, no. <laughs> now, see, man, I hate to do it, but. I gotta go with Man Crush again in 89. Why do you hate to do it? You like chemical weapons? No, I don't like (laughs) chemical weapons, but you know, I want a nice competitive game here. But when I look at the numbers, Arnaldo was only the ninth worst person (laughs) in the world at the time. The people above him were terrible. Like, what do you have to do to, like, get on that list? I don't know. But here on Dueling Decades, we strive for excellence. And (laughs) he's only coming in at nine. So, Man Crush, you get the point and you control the board. He didn't even steal a billion yet. I mean, <laughs> you got to embezzle. He was only in office for four years. Give him time. <laughs> they didn't. He got caught. He's stupid. Well, right. that was the thing. See? He worked his way on the list and then worked his way off the list. But you know what? I've been in games before where it was three fucking nothing going in two-point rounds. But, of course, those were tag matches and we lost. But <laughs> let's go. Let's see. Uh, we're still in one-point rounds. Let's go fucking hot products right in the middle here. Okay. 
All right, Man Crush, what do you got for your first hot product? All right, January 10th, 1989. Uh, this video sold more than 800,000 copies in the United States by April of 1989. Uh, it was plastered all over the place. Initially, it was slated to be a full-on theatrical release, but they decided to go straight to video because that's what we fucking did in 1989. And then it was certified eight times platinum in the U.S., nine times platinum in the U.K., four times platinum in Canada, and also spurned off a video game for home consoles and the arcade. Uh, this home video was performed by perhaps the most famous person on the fucking planet at that point in time. Probably, I wouldn't say now, but he's still pretty fucking famous. Yakov Smirnoff? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not talking about fucking Missouri, man. All right. For the mere price of $19.99 or about $41 in 2020, you could pick up a copy of Michael Jackson's moonwalker from your local sam goody or any other fucking department store on the planet at that point moonwalker was pretty much a review and here's something that i learned like drew was saying i never knew this it was pretty much a review of his uh michael jackson's bad tour that ended in 1988 which was actually jackson's first ever solo tour i did not know that really yeah huh. it's pretty fucking crazy Anyhow, you had Joe Pesci playing a fucking mobster. Go figure. Uh, and he turns into a car. He has a bizarre ponytail. Jackson turns into some kind of, like, I'm spoiling this shit here. But if you want to go to YouTube, you can watch it and pause this. But he turns into, like, this cyborg space shuttle hybrid. Then he defeats the evil guys. He kills Joe Pesci by blowing his ass up. And then he concludes the entire thing by taking a bunch of children Bringing them to a concert hall and singing them a Beatles song. Yeah. Why the fuck not? <laughs> it's all for the children. It is. Um, it's touching. But yeah, it's, dude, it's fucking weird. It's, uh, it was a very popular video, but if you go to YouTube and watch it, the beginning is a bunch of videos from the bad tour. They're all extended. Kind of cool if you're a big Michael Jackson fan. The movie itself at the end, fucking really bizarre, but totally worth watching if you're drunk. My second pick, January 8th, 1989, and we were talking about this before uh, the episode came on. I found ads for this one being sold for the exclusive price of $2,895. That's a draw-dropping $6,000 in 2020. But I found this like a full week before the quote-unquote release date that you would find on Wikipedia or every fucking place on the internet. Uh, people are selling this shit all over the place. And I tell my daughter this all the time. Wikipedia is fucking awesome. I, I say it just like that. Wikipedia is fucking awesome. But it's not that accurate sometimes. So you just check that shit. But I still see this specific machine popping up on eBay anywhere between $200, $400. I've seen people using these as fish tanks, converting them into like little televisions. <laughs> I shit you not. Uh, some Apple fans, and again... I found this online on a bunch of different places. They consider this to be the best Mac of the 80s and 90s. I'm not making that up. I actually found like a slew of articles saying the exact same thing, so it must be true, right? Uh, a friend of mine still had one of these when I graduated high school in 1996, and believe it or not, it was faster than my 100 megahertz computer that I was running Windows 95 on. So it's a solid machine that came out in January 89. I'm talking about the Apple Macintosh SE3. It's the all-in-one. If you guys, like, if you have a picture of an old Mac in your head, this That's is it. the fucking one you're talking about. 
It's the all-in-one 32-bit, which was a dirty 32-bit, but I'm not going to get into that because I'll bore the shit out of everybody. But it was a dirty 32-bit, 16 megahertz, 1 meg of RAM, expandable to 4 megs of RAM, had that 1.4 meg floppy super drive on it, 30 meg hard drive, 9-inch built-in monochrome monitor, and it had a carrier that you could purchase separately to pack it up and carry this 20-pound motherfucker everywhere you went. So, I mean, it's a win-win. But just think about how technology has transpired over the past 31 years. Crazy. Yeah, the phone that's in your pocket is about 50 times more powerful than this machine for a fraction of the price. Yet somehow, we're still using gas-powered engines. How the fuck does that work (laughs) out? Uh, But anyhow, uh, the two I'm going with, Michael Jackson's Moonwalker and the Mac SE30. Yeah, my one of my friends, he's a he's a graphic designer. He has this in his basement and it is in fact a fish tank. So yeah. yeah. It's it's pretty dope as a fish tank. And that's why they go for like two hundred bucks because cool. people take it and they rip it out, hollow yeah. the thing out. And uh I've seen uh my buddy Keith had one where he took it out and he replaced uh, replaced the inside with like a nine inch uh CRT color TV and they had it in their kitchen. It's fucking badass. But it, yeah, if bad. if you're thinking Old school Mac machine. This is the fucking machine. Yeah, computers. It's so crazy. Like computers back in the day. I remember like gateways. Like they were yep. like four, like three or four grand. Like it's just insane. Like how expensive they who, were. I can like, get like a how a laptop now this? for like four hundred bucks, and it would still be decently powerful, and like would absolutely just piss on computers from back then. Dude, it's crazy. I part of the research is I knew a lot about the machine, so I wanted to know who bought this and like how they purchased it. So I like I dug and dug and dug and I found these forums of people talking about it. And there was one guy that I I remember the post he said that he called some company in New York that was selling one and he had to purchase it using three different credit cards to buy this machine. <laughs> if that ain't fucking American, I don't know what is. So That is yeah, fantastic. Is. Fucking 2895. Wow. All right, Drew. Let's head over to you for the hot products round. Yeah, about that. Um, <laughs> I, I I tell you what, I had I had a tough time digging up some hot products here. Uh, I I scoured the interwebs for literally like two straight days trying to find some things here, like hours each day. Here here's here's what I have. We're gonna go to January seventh, nineteen ninety seven. The release on because we're still using the VHS. One of the best American buddy action comedy films ever in the history of the world, Fled. Who doesn't remember that? <laughs> Dude, I went to the movies to see Fled. See? You, you're you a fan already. Uh, directed by uh, the incomparable Kevin Hooks. He's done so much. Uh, it stars Lawrence Fishburne and Ste- uh, Stephen Baldwin. Uh, they're two prisoners chained together who flee. Get it? Flee, Fled. During an escape attempt gone no, bad. Hold on. The most cringy part of the entire movie is when he looks at, I forgot who says it, but one of them looks at the other one and goes, we got to get fled. Like, dude, you don't need that for the coming attraction. That's fucking horrible English. Nobody says that. We have a title. <laughs> <laughs> he, probably, he probably read the cue card wrong. He's like, wait, is that an E or a D? Son of a... I, I don't know. Let's just go with it. It's like that epic clip from Hercules where Kevin Sorbo read the uh, stage directions on the script and he was like, disappointed! <laughs> <laughs> Gotta get fled. 
I'm so sorry. Uh, but I mean, all right. So the movie, you know, it was maybe people can't read cue cards and that's okay. But it had Lawrence Fishburne, Stephen Baldwin, Will Patton, Robert John Burke, and probably most importantly, uh, Salma Hayek. So that's uh, they had that going for it. Yep. But here's a. Uh, it was produced by Mr. Frank Mancuso Jr. Now, I don't know if you've heard of some of these other movies he's worked on, but uh, he worked on Internal Affairs, the, the Species franchise, Hoodlum, Stigmata, one of my favorite movies from the, the 90s, Ronin. I love that movie. Uh, I Know Who Killed Me and Road to Paloma. So he's he's done a couple things as well, some of the Friday the 13th uh, movies as well. So some people there were doing some things. So that was that was good. I enjoyed uh, it. I enjoyed that movie. I don't think that movie will win this round, but uh, personally, oh I, no, I think I think that movie <laughs> it's got legs. Like if you you could still watch it. Uh, remember his buddy Puffy, like the whole thing where he's a hacker and stuff. It, like it's kind of cool. Like I think it's a fun movie to watch on VHS. You know what does have legs? My next pick. Uh-oh. Which was another VHS rental. Uh-huh. That was all I could find. <laughs> <laughs> but the legs on this one are fantastic because this film was ranked number 68 on Bravo's 100 Funniest Movies. So it made the list. I'm talking about the classic Kingpin, yeah. which was a an American sports comedy film directed by the Farrelly brothers. Everybody knows them, Dumb and Dumber. Those guys were hilarious and written by Barry Finero and... Mort Nathan starring Woody Harrelson, Randy Quaid. I guess he was okay to do the movie. And most importantly, Bill Murray. Yeah. No, Vanessa oh, Angel. Vanessa Angel. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I thought you were going Murray. Get me a beer out of the freezer. Woo. But yeah, so so Kingpin, everybody knows that movie. It's, it's hilarious. Uh, it tells the story of an alcoholic ex-professional bowler who becomes the manager for a promising Amish talent who's played by Randy Quaid. And Randy Quaid is just... In his own little world, and I love him dearly. Uh, even Roger Ebert uh, had one of the more noteworthy positive reviews. He gave it a 3.5 out of 4 stars. So Ebert loved it. Uh, but yeah, this movie, box office-wise, it was so-so. But really? overall, yeah, I think it made like 30-something 30, 30 million. I saw this twice in the movies. This shit was fucking hilarious. The whole thing with like, <laughs> we don't have any cows. We only got a bull. <laughs> As he's drinking the shit, fucking come out of the bucket. Dude, there's so many fucking fantastically hilarious parts in this movie. God. The, yeah, the entire movie is great. Uh, yeah, so it made $32 million in the, in the uh, box office. Uh, <laughs> uh, you're right. And nobody's yep. going to understand that unless you saw the movie. Oh, man. All right. So let's get to the judgment for this round. Wow, man. <laughs> Now, you bring up Kingpin. That's a movie I absolutely love as well because it's fucking hilarious. Woody Harrelson sure is. is amazing in that movie. Bill Murray, come on. You can't go wrong with Bill Murray. He's great in everything. The fucking hair. Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> everything. Now, Kingpin came out at the exact right time for me, man. I grew up as a Cheers fan, so that covered Woody Harrelson. You know, I was always been a big Bill Murray fan. That got two bases right there. And there's a cameo in this movie by a certain band that I happen to be a huge fan of. Blues Traveler has a nice little cameo in the middle of the movie. They're actually the Amish band that plays in the movie and during the end credits and stuff. So huge props for picking Kingpin on that one. Now fled. Oh, man, where to start with this one? Because I have never fucking seen it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> gotta get fled 
Now, uh, Man Crush, you had Moonwalker, which is interesting because I was just having this conversation with my son the other day. He was watching Moonwalker on YouTube just the other day. Did he watch? Here's the thing. You can't find, and I couldn't find it. I wanted to go back and, because I don't remember what Beatles song it was at the end, but it must be like a rights thing on YouTube because that very last scene, you could see him turn into the fucking yeah. uh, the robot spaceship thing, and then it cuts after that, and you can't find a clip of it, and I ain't buying it. So Yeah, see, that's always where I remembered it from. Matter of fact, when the whole robot thing came in, that's where I tuned out. My actual favorite part of Moonwalker is the claymation stuff in the beginning where he turns uh, into the that- rabbit and he has the dance off. That part's pure magic for me. But I'm actually a big fan of Moonwalker. The Macintosh, you threw me for a loop on that one. I thought you were going to say, like, the Apple IIe or something. I wasn't sure which way you were going with that one at first. But, uh, yeah, the SE30. It's 1989, bro. The IIe is <laughs> yeah, far <I> know. <laughs> beyond that. <laughs> well, you said when you picture Macintosh, you picture this. And I'm like, okay, that's the Apple IIe. Well, you can, what do you picture? How do you picture a IIe? What does the 2E look like? A fucking keyboard? Yeah, you had the keyboard <laughs> that set back real big with the monitor sitting on top of the built-in is, keyboard. I know which one you're talking. Yeah. Okay, so you know. Yeah, I know. And how I would have described it, it's now what Macintosh uses as a logo for a Mac is the outline <laughs> of that computer. Oh, no shit. I didn't even realize Yeah, that. I've seen them. They've used that for years. But yeah, this is a tough one for me. I'm not real familiar with that Mac, but I do know it was a huge product. But I am a huge fan of Moonwalker. I think the claymation sequence in the beginning of that, where you got the two fat guys on the the mopeds and they're chasing them, it is awesome. That's where he turns into a car, I think. That's where Pesci turns no, into that's a car? A, no, he turns into a, a rabbit wearing a leather jacket, driving a motorcycle. At the end... When he's battling uh, Joe Pesci, he goes all fucking Optimus Prime and yeah. And actually, you know what? For an, a film from 1989, that one sequence, especially since it didn't get a theatrical release, the effects are not that bad. No, no, it, it really held up. You know, yeah. I mean, people always talk about Thriller because of all of its technological advancements. I think Moonwalker oft, often gets forgotten about. Not because of just the claymation, but but like because you said that CG that they had at the end that was uh, that was some cutting edge stuff at the time. I'm not gonna lie though, it's fucking weird. But that's why it's great, man. You got the extended movie, <laughs> the music videos, which is cool, but the movie itself, like the story, it's fucking weird. It's it's a, it's like thriller, man. It's a long music video. All right, so man crush, I got to give you this round mainly because of Moonwalker. I'm going to have to nudge that out over Kingpin, although I do have a personal preference over Kingpin. I do understand that the cultural relevance of Moonwalker is probably a little bit bigger than Kingpin. (laughs) Ah. (laughs) That lady's butter teeth always fucking made me sick. What is it about good sex that makes me have to crap? (laughs) And when he's puking in the fucking toilet? So good. Yeah, it, it's just one of my favorite comedies. But I'm sorry, Drew. I got to go with Moonwalker on this one because of the cultural relevance there. That was a huge monumental picture. It was really Michael Jackson trying to recreate the success he had with Thriller. I don't think people thought it was achieved, but I personally think it was achieved in a totally different way. It was a much different tone than what we saw out of Thriller. 
All right, Jewelers, so it is three to nothing, but don't worry, it's still anyone's game as we still have the two-point rounds ahead of us, and we'll play more Dueling Decades right after these important messages. Here's here's a message I'm not going to win. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Man Crush, you are up three to nothing heading into the two-point rounds. What category would you like to go with? Uh, I just want to say before we go into these, I'm having a fucking grand old time with this. Like the week experience, you pick out such granular stuff. Yeah. That it's not things that you talk about too often. So it's a lot more fun, I th- I think personally, than getting the full month ordeal. You know, I don't know. That's just me. Or maybe it's because I'm winning three to nothing. I don't know. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm so- having a blast. Yeah, I'm just, I mean, whatever. I can't do anything about no, it. No, it's it's fun. It, no, it is fun because, you know, you, because if you have like a whole month to play with and some, you know, maybe some months might be better than other. Like if you had like June or July for movies, you're going to have a bunch of whales oh, yeah, in there just because sure. you're going to have some of the, that's when the blockbusters come out. But, you know, you have to dig down and which is, I think, good, you know, because then you, it kind of forces you to find some things that you might not have known. Yeah. And I think it's better for the listeners, too, because I think with those big months, they know about that stuff. You know, if you bring out Back to the Future, everyone knows back to the future if i'm coming out with something else like that's only released in a week it might be stuff that you don't remember and even for me doing the research it's shit i don't remember so i i really like it like moonwalker sorry to interrupt here but can we go back to this back to the future movie you were talking about (laughs) (laughs) oh you've never heard of it no is is it good should i check it out Uh, eh, it's all right it's all right it's got that dude from mask in it oh okay yeah all right, so let's go to television. Let's go old school. We're going to finish up with movies, uh, but for the first two-point round, let's go TV. And on January 9th, 1989, we got the first of over 7,000 episodes of this show uh, that's been on CBS for 31 years as of today. Today was its 31st birthday, January 9th, 1989. That's right. If anybody didn't realize it, we record this show a week prior uh, the original anchor of the show, actually, he was the host, uh, this guy, David Frost, and he was demoted after three weeks because this show had uh, really shitty ratings. So I think that's pretty funny. This has been on for 31 years. And the first show they came out, the or the first host they came out the gate with sucked. And they just were like, God, ah, dude, three weeks, you're, you're gone. You're, we're putting you as a correspondent. Uh, but in retrospect, it's probably a great move, considering that they're still on the air today. Uh, over the years, the show has shifted into like a tabloidish type show. It's kind of started as like a straight news show. But however, it's become part of my nightly dinner routine. Uh, it's kind of serving as background noise for my wife and I. At 6.30 every night, we get our helping of Deborah Norville and their crew. And they give us the latest scoop on Everything and anything. The show I'm talking about is Inside Edition on CBS. I'm mostly in it for the uplifting news stories. They don't tackle much of the dark stuff like the nightly news. And uh that's kind of my thing. I don't wanna I don't wanna it's kind of like a mixture. If you're gonna if you've never seen Inside Edition, it's like a mixture between TMZ and the nightly news without the dark shit. Yeah, it's it's pop culture and fluff. Yeah. Yeah. Like they'll tell you stories about like last night, some uh, a neighbor ran over to somebody's house whose house was on fire and it was caught on the ring camera on his on uh, the girl's door as he woke up the entire family and helped her out of this fire. Great story. 
That's what I want to see on the news. Hell yeah. Not the bullshit that we see no- normally. But um, Deborah Norville, she's been on the show since 1995 yeah. as, the, as the lead anchor. That's fucking incredible. It is, yeah. You got to give props to anybody that's been on anything for that fucking long. That's crazy. Except heroin. Well, no, I mean, if, <laughs> no, no, no. Listen, if you've been on heroin for 25 years, they give you major props for being fucking alive. Nice. Big shout out to Keith Richards. We love Keith. <laughs> that's right. And every other drug that he's been on. They cancel each other out. Right. <laughs> All right. Here's my gold medal of the round. And I don't know if it's a gold medal for everybody, but it is for me. January 7th, 1989. You might already know this one because we posted the video for this on our Facebook a couple days ago. And that post went ape shit. Uh, it went so ape shit. That the former host of the show that I'm talking about, Rhonda Shear, even chimed in to tell us how awesome we were. And I'm not even joking on this. This actually happened. If you go to the post on our Facebook, Rhonda commented that we're fucking awesome. Well, Rhonda, you're fucking awesome. And you were hot. And you're probably still hot. I don't know. I don't, I don't watch HSN. But if you were a fan of USA, up all night. You want Rhonda Shear to judge an episode of Dueling Decades, as do I. So please hit her up and say, hey, Rhonda, go judge an episode of Dueling Decades, because that would be fucking awesome, right? Because right. you know what's going to happen if she doesn't judge an episode of Dueling Decades. I'm going to have to judge. So duelers, <laughs> it's a simple choice. Mark James, Rhonda Shear, you pick. I, I was actually shocked that she replied under it. I mean, listen, like growing up through the 90s, and of course the show started, Gilbert Godfrey was the host. But I think everybody still remembers it for Rhonda, obviously. She came in a couple of years later, and then they went back and forth between L.A. and New York and whatever. But growing up, like when I was in high school, like she was my girl that I saw on Friday and Saturday nights. Yeah. You know? Like I didn't have a car. Friday and Saturday nights, like the show bounced back and forth between Friday and Saturday. So like one of those days... I was watching Rhonda and whatever B-movies she had up those nights. And that's what got me into a lot of B-movies because at the time, I didn't know what the fuck a B-movie was. You know, like when I'm a freshman in high school or an eighth grade or whatever. Right. I thought all movies went to the movies, you know? And then I'm watching these movies that nobody really knew about. Like, how many times can you see Return to Frogtown? Probably a lot of motherfucking times. But if I saw it on USA Up all night with Rhonda, I was like, oh, shit. Let's watch this Robert Zadar fucking awesome-ass movie that's on. You know what I'm saying? Anyways, like I let the cat out of the bag. The show is obviously uh, USA Up all night, and it was a staple of my Friday and Saturday nights, which I'm sure it was probably a staple for a lot of teenagers and probably young adults. I think a lot of people love this show. Rhonda and Gilbert Gottfried, they both introduced some awesome B-movie titles, introduced us to a lot of stuff that we didn't know about. Uh, And the show ran all the way up to 1998. And again, if you want Rhonda on the show, reach out to her. Go to our Facebook, tag her and shit. Because we want her on the show. Because I think it would be fucking great. It would be fantastic. Oh, dude, it would be fucking great. And let's do a a B-movie genre show. Pick two years, B-movie genre, all five fucking dueling decades categories, and have Rhonda as the judge. I think that would be awesome. That would be amazing. That'd keep me up all night. <laughs> all night. <laughs> Those are my two picks for TV, though. We have uh, Deborah Norville, and she, she's got her thing going on for her, too. Oh, yeah. She's no yeah, slouch. She's not, she's not Rhonda Shear, though. But no, no. 
that's what we got. We got <laughs> we had those are my two picks. All right, Drew. Let's head over to you for the TV round. What do we got for television in 1997? Oh dear lord. Okay, so <laughs> here's a this is a great show uh, which debuted on January 6th, 1997, and uh, it was it was great. Uh, Aaron Spelling gave us probably one of the best shows ever. In case you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm talking about Sunset Beach, oh, which man. is. I'm throwing you to say the uh, heights. No, this is so much better than the Heights. This is this is probably one of the best shows I've I've I've, I've never heard of it actually. Um, but it's a show that followed the loves and lives of the people living in the Orange County coastal area, appropriately named Sunset Beach in California. Uh, the show somehow won two daytime Emmy awards and was nominated eleven other times and received twenty two nominations for other various awards, uh, probably for having the biggest. Like the biggest cast and crew, where I literally heard of none of them. So I think she get an award for that. I, I've I looked never at, heard of this show. I seriously. So the only person I heard of was Eddie Cibrian. I oh, remember yeah, him. He yeah, was yeah. he was in that ESPN poker show Tilt. I I remember watching that. He was really good in that. I think he's a good actor. Yeah, uh, he's been like a bunch of other things too. But he is like the only. And I like he's an Italian uh, dude. That's he's always playing like like a cop. Yeah, like a cop like or a, what was it? There was one show that he was on, on NBC where he was like a, a paramedic or something. Or a firefighter, uh, he, or some shit like that. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's those, those but like not the roles this show. He, he goes not for. this show. No, this no. Horrible. This show was had, this show had much more depth than other <laughs> any other show in the world because it won two daytime Emmy awards, as I've previously stated. Wait, this was a daytime show. Yeah. Oh fuck. So, which means I watched it all the time in 1997. What channel I was, was it on? Uh, you know, all all the channels. <laughs> it was on the <laughs> you, you would put on your television, and they, there I was on like at least forty three channels, I think. So it was it was everywhere, uh, it, and it was compelling and rich, and you know, it, it talked to us on a personal level, you know. And I think there's there's a lot to be said for what for what Sunset Beach. It, it helped me grow up. Yeah, I, I honestly, I, I have nothing else to say about this one. I never watched it. Never even heard about it until you guys said, hey. This is the most that anybody's talked about this in the last 23 it's, years. If you, if you like, if you pull like the Google analytics for the Wikipedia page, it's going to be like 43 and 42 of them are me. So <laughs> that's, that's and pretty much it. Somebody in Hollywood's going to be like, we should reboot this because there's a whole slew of people that are looking this up now. It's, and the, the other one person is probably Aaron Spelling. He's probably like, Ooh, Wait, he's dead. Anybody? So, oh, Tory Spelling then. <laughs> but yeah, I never, I never, I never even heard of it. And you guys are like, hey, why don't you research January 1997? So, I, I, actually, I kind of hate you guys right now for making me research that. <laughs> so, I, I seriously spent way more time looking into that than I should have. I'm like, and there's like a list of like all the cast, and I'm like, oh, let's look into this person. Oh, let's look into this person. There's like 30 friggin' people. Like none of them. Don't really you love didn't. that when you have a really shitty pick, but it's the best thing you can find? So you start it's going it. through like little granular things and you're like, surely somebody in here has like had like the cure for cancer or something like they figured something out. And nope. then you're like, nah, I get no. Then sometimes you're like, oh, maybe it's the cure for cancer. Other times it's Sunset Beach. Yeah. <laughs> so moving on to my next one. Uh, January 9th, 1997, uh, a date that probably everybody's mom remembers because everyone's mom changed the channel from QVC over to PBS that night to watch the highly anticipated debut of Antiques Roadshow. 
Uh, basically, the premise of that show, it's centered around local antique owners who bring in items to be appraised by experts. Uh, that show's been on the air ever since. Season 24 is starting this year. So uh, it's uh, it's it's been around. It's it's Everybody knows the Antiques Roadshow. I've, I've watched it a few times. I'm not like, the biggest fan of it, but... And it's also quite the trendsetter, too, because it, I think it gave inspiration for shows like Pawn Stars and it's a terrible true TV show with a stupid name, Hardcore Pawn. Oh, God. It's like, really? <laughs> That's the name you come up with? It's in Detroit. Yeah. How does that get through like the approval process? Like, hey, guys, I'll be cool with this. That'll be funny. But Set it also no has a funny-ass fucking scene on Grandma's Boy. I that's in my notes. Yep, uh, I was gonna say uh, to give that show some street ca- uh, cred. It made an appearance in a highly underrated movie. Love Grandma's that movie. That movie is yeah. so good. I love that movie. That's probably the best Happy Madison production. I think totally agree. in the last twenty mm-hmm. years. Yeah. Uh, if you go if you go by that, yeah. yes, the last twenty years, absolutely. And oddly enough, Adam Sandler wasn't even in the movie. Yep. Um, I love Adam Sandler though. Don't get me wrong, but Grandma's Boy, that movie is so freaking oh, hilarious. Dude, I love that fucking flick. Nick Swardson was hilarious <laughs> in that movie. Damn. Uh, what's uh, David Spade? The uh, what's his name? Shiloh. He was like the server. Like that. That movie is so good. I am a it robot. Really I am a robot. I like where he's like, "How did they?" And this is not even in the eighties or nineties, so forgive us. But how did they see me? <laughs> and he has like the big, like the big, like black trench coat on. He's like, he's like, he thinks he like lives in the Matrix. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah but it's a fucking sweet ass car bed. <laughs> he's jerking off the fucking uh, Tomb Raider dolls and shit. His mom walks in. <laughs> Dude, you came with my mom. Uh but yeah, so uh, Antiques Roadshow, uh, it's actually seen by up to 8 million viewers each week. Uh, and it's PBS's highest rated ongoing series. Oh, so shit. I think that that right there is some uh, legit cred besides being on Grandma's Boy. So Antiques Roadshow. It's their highest rated series now because they lost uh, Sesame Street to HBO. I love Sesame Street. Uh, I wish my kids would watch that a little bit more, to be honest with you. They're going to say they lost their virginity to Charlie Chaplin, like the girl in the video. (laughs) (laughs) I once gave Charlie Chaplin a hand job. All right, guys. Let's take a look at the judgment for the television round. 1997, you come out, Drew, with Sunset Beach. So good. Oddly enough, this is a show I am very familiar with. Oh, my God. And the reason I am familiar with it, because loyal listeners to the show will have realized by now, we talked about Sunset Beach a few episodes back when I battled Julie. I almost picked it in my television round, but I'm like, there's no way I'm talking about a stupid uh, daytime soap opera. And what did Julie pick that round? The debut of a daytime soap opera. So I had to bring up the fact that I almost picked Sunset Beach. And how I would have picked it, it was for the end of this series in 1999. Two, day, two daytime Emmys. I just want to mention that. It again. did have two daytime <laughs> Emmys, but it wasn't good enough to make my list. Uh, Antiques <laughs> Roadshow, me. on the other hand, that's a hidden gem. Yeah. That is just a fantastic show. It's one of the better programs on TV, I think. No, no, it's really not. But uh, <laughs> Antiques Roadshow's all right. It's a good show. Uh, I do like the the hi- little history lessons you get with each of the items. I think that's kind of makes it all worth it. All right, and Man Crush, let's take a look at what you had. You had debut of Inside Edition. 
And USA's up all night with Ron DeShear. No, no, no. It's USA's up all night. <laughs> okay. You Thank say you for it correcting right. Do it again. Yeah, you're right. USA's up all night. See, I can't do go. it as good as you. <laughs> so, man, as much as I love Antiques Roadshow, Drew, I'm going to have to go with Man Crush yet again. I, I don't think you like me. Gray Bush, <laughs> you win the round. <laughs> <laughs> it was only one hair. <laughs> So, Man Crush, that means you win this game, but can you go for the clean sweep? You have control of the board. Unlike a couple people that have done this, I've never had a shutout. So this would be huge if I can get a shutout here. Uh, of course, we got to finish up with movies. It's the last round that's left. Last category that's left, rather. And uh, January 13th, 1989, winner of three Academy Awards and three other nominations. This is pretty big deal. It was a pretty big deal for 1989. It's one of those Oscar award winning films. So, you know, it's not going to have a huge box office haul, although it did bring in thirty five million dollars, seventy three million dollars in 2020. It's so weird saying 2020. Did you ever notice that a lot of these Academy nominated films are usually period pieces? Yeah, I've noticed that. That's probably why I don't like a lot of them. Uh, See, I love (laughs) period pieces. (laughs) It depends on the period. Yeah, I mean, if it's the time of the month, I'd like it, but not this. (laughs) Anyhow, um, this one's no exception. Again, it's a period piece. Uh, It's got a great cast. John Malkovich, Glenn Close, Michelle Pfeiffer, Uma Thurman, Keanu Reeves, and a bunch of other motherfuckers in this movie. Uh, I believe this is also uh, has a uh, Uma Thurman boob shot in this movie. So if you're a Mr. Skin Lover, little drop from our past episodes you'll uh, enjoy this movie i'm not a big fan of these period pieces like i just said uh and it's been a long time since since i watched this one but it's actually a good movie this movie is none other than dangerous liaisons uh interesting note from this one alan rickman actually played the role on Bro- not broadway but like i guess in england or wherever the fuck they had this play of the the role that malkovich had and he he auditioned, but they didn't want to give an inexperienced movie star this role. And he hadn't been in a movie at this point. So instead, he went on to play fucking Hans Gruber in Die yeah. Hard. Wow. So I, I guess it worked out for him. Uh, but that's my first pick. Uh, Dangerous Liaisons. You can go watch it. I don't know. But my second pick is the better of the two picks for me personally, I think. Uh, January 13th, 1989. I don't think I've ever in this show gotten an Oliver Stone movie since we began doing decades. Not that I can recall. Yeah. So and it's a great movie. Uh, and before we recorded this, I rented the movie on Amazon because I couldn't. I have the DVD somewhere, but I have like over 2000 DVDs. and I couldn't find it because they're not in any kind of fucking order anymore. And dude, this movie still holds. up. It's amazing. Amazing fucking movie. The and speaking of Academy Awards, I'm actually shocked. And I'm probably going to butcher the shit out of his name because I don't know much that he's been in. But Eric Bogushan? Bogushin? I always thought it was like Bosagian or something. Oh, maybe. The guy maybe. from You're talking about the guy from Talk Radio, right? Well, that's exactly what my pick is. No, really? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or is it Eric, is, uh, Eric Bogosian? Bogosian. That's Bogosian. The only other thing I remember him from is fucking uh, Under Siege 2, where he's the fucking bad guy. Yeah. Uh, but he, dude, he is brilliant in this movie. 
obviously I'm not going to beat around the bush because Mark already said it. The movie is talk <laughs> radio. And if you watch this movie, it's like 110%. You will think that Bogosian like came straight from radio. Yeah. Because he is fucking spot on as like the late night shock jock, you know, talking shit to the people calling it. It's so good. It's such a good movie. Uh, I don't even want to give it away, like, because I know a lot of people probably haven't seen this movie, so I don't want to say what happens in the end or whatever. Because go watch this shit. The movie only took in three point five million dollars, but it, it's a cult classic. If you're listening to a podcast, this movie will remind you of good old talk radio. Yeah. So go watch it. Radio like this doesn't exist outside of podcasting anymore. So to watch something like this, you're going to be like, holy shit, this is like back in the day when they used to take calls from all over the place and people are just wackos calling up. Oliver Stone directed it. Alec Baldwin's in it. John McGinley, who's great and everything he's in. And speaking of like uh, Baldwin actually said he had a book that came out. He said he hated working with Oliver Stone in this movie. Really? Because I guess, yeah, he said Oliver Stone's like a freaking dictator. When wow. it comes to directing, yeah. obviously, I mean, the dude's fucking amazing. So he hated being in this movie. So obviously you're going to get a really good performance out of Alec Baldwin, who plays uh, Bogosian's boss. And Bogosian actually wrote this. Right. Uh, he won like a Pulitzer or some shit for uh, this being a play and whatnot. Yep. It's really fucking good. Uh, out of all the stuff, if I say it's really good, it usually is. Like, I'm not bullshitting you. Like this movie Go watch it. It's pretty much set in one location the entire flick, but it's it's nearly two hours long, but it feels quick. It's really good. And that's all I got to say about that. And if you're a podcast listener, you got to go and watch this movie. You'll appreciate it. Thank me later. Those are my two picks. You got Dangerous Liaisons, Talk Radio. All right, Drew. Close us out with the movies round. What do you got, man? Oh, I have two classics that have stood the test of time. <laughs> They really are. Um, so, uh, so the first one came out. Actually, I think both of them came out January tenth. The first of which uh, everybody remembers Penelope Ann Miller and Linda Hunt, right? They, everybody knows who they are. Yeah. But this movie's not. But this movie's not Kindergarten Cop. That's this movie is not. It'd be cool if it was, because they'd be like, "Oh, I'm gonna take the toy back to the carpet," and then who's your daddy? What does he do? But no, I, I, I wish it was Kindergarten Cop, but it's not. But I'm talking about the relic which came out January 10th, 1997. Uh, it's a science fiction horror film directed by Peter Himes and based on the best-selling novel Relic by Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child. And again, the film stars Penelope Ann Miller, Linda Hunt, also Tom Sizemore. Uh, so it's a pretty legit cast in there. Uh, in the film, a detective and an anthropologist try to defeat a South American lizard-like monster who is on a killing spree in a Chicago museum. So it can happen anywhere. It just happened in this case to be Chicago. Uh, but, you know, Hyams also. So Hyams also uh, directed Sudden Death with Jean-Claude Van Damme. Yeah. Uh, that's a great flick. Uh, he also directed End of Days, which is an Arnold, obviously an Arnold movie. So it kind of all came full circle, working with some of his co-workers from uh, Kindergarten Cop. And then he works with Arnold himself in End of Days. Uh, the Relic grossed over $48 million at the box office. Which in twenty twenty dollars is around like seventy eight trillion million dollars. So it's it's a lot of money. Um, it also had James Whitmore, who was who also played the librarian in Shawshank Redemption. So uh, 
the the relic it's a great movie uh it, it was filmed in the chicago museum they actually wanted to do it in the uh i think it was the met in new york but they said no because they didn't want to like have people scared to go there they were like so no this is a bad movie well that could have been it too um <laughs> I'm 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 sorry. No, this is a classic. No, they they should be like, oh, please, if you're gonna you're gonna win so many Oscars with this movie, but uh, for some reason it didn't. I don't know why. But that's my first one, The Relic. And for my second pick, uh, it's not so much this movie, but it's kind of what came after and what was to be unleashed upon the United States of America. Uh, I am talking about Jackie Chan's First Strike, Police Story Four. Which at first it came out in Hong Kong in February '96, but January 1997 was when it was released in the United States of America, and it made over 57 million in Hong Kong and over 15 million in the U.S. But dollars—it's not the important thing here, guys. Uh, this was one of the first movies, along with Rumble in the Bronx, that made Jackie Chan a huge star here in the U.S. Uh, and up to this point, Chan had received some offers. Uh, I don't know if you guys knew this or not, but he was actually offered the role of Simon Phoenix in Demolition Man by Sylvester Stallone. Can you imagine? Like, I mean, I don't know if I, I don't think I could see Chan in that role. I no. think Snipes friggin' was amazing as a crazy person in that movie. But uh, he turned it down because he didn't want to be typecast in future roles, which is hilarious. Cause I feel like he is actually, <laughs> in fact, typecast, but I digress. But yeah, so this movie, you know, it really helped introduce him to the American audiences, which helped him land the role in Rush Hour, which came out in 98. And that movie grossed over $244 million worldwide, but more importantly, over $140 million of that was in the U.S. alone. So, you know, before a lot of his early movies obviously were, you know, Hong Kong, but now it's it's the U.S. And between those two movies, uh, Rumble in the Bronx and, you know, First Strike, which came out on this day, uh, that's how we got our first uh, introduction to Mr. Jackie Chan. And the role's never been the same since. Alrighty, let's take a look at the ruling for the final movies round. Man Crush, you come in with Dangerous Liaisons, a movie I'm not overly familiar with. does have a lot of critical acclaim to it, but I can't speak on it with any amount of authenticity just because, well, I've never seen it. Uh, all right. I, I am aware of it. Uh, <laughs> I know all about the movie, just never really piqued my interest to check it out. Talk Radio, on the other hand, is a movie that I absolutely adore. That is just an absolute masterpiece. Uh, everything you said about it is 100% true. Go, Just go watch it, people. And if you really feel inclined, watch that and pair it up with a viewing of Pump Up the Volume as well. You know, like every old movie, we have no qualms about dropping what happens in the like throughout the movie. Except I don't want to give one. anything away. Yeah, Hell except no. this one. Because I think a lot of people haven't seen this movie, yeah. and they should. Yeah. There are some movies that it's just best that you, the only thing going into it that you know is the title. Yeah. And you just go it, along for the ride. So and Talk Radio is one of those movies. He's so amazing in that, dude. Like, yeah. I don't know how his career, like, I don't know if it fizzled, but I don't know what he really did after that. I mean, obviously, he's under siege, too. Uh, but, man, he was amazing in this one. All right, Drew, so looking at your films, you had The Relic, came out on January 10th. Uh, again, a movie I'm not overly familiar with. I always get this one confused with Mimic, which came out about the same time in 97. No, Mimic Mimic was uh, not a fan of that one, but uh, The Relic, critically acclaimed. <laughs> yes. So critically acclaimed. Now, your other movie, Jackie Chan's First Strike, you said it was? 
Yes, sir. That's correct. Yeah. That's actually my very favorite Jackie Chan film. (laughs) First Strike is amazing. That is the film that got me into Jackie Chan. And if you've never seen it, I highly recommend checking that out. The latter fight sequence in that movie, to this date, still my all-time favorite fight sequence ever captured on film. It's fast-paced. It's fun. It's furious. You can't ask for anything better. I like this one a lot better than Rumble in the Bronx. A lot of people love that film, but man, First Strike you just cannot go wrong with. So, I guess I gotta make my ruling on this one, and it's really hard. Uh, I'm gonna cancel out The Relic and Dangerous Liaisons, because I've never seen either one of them. The other two films, First Strike and Talk Radio, I am a huge fan of both films. So I really don't know where to go with this one, but you know what? I'm gonna have to give a round to Drew. Man Crush, I'm sorry you don't get the sweep. You're a fucking asshole. I gotta give it to my man, (laughs) Jackie Chan in First Strike. And the reason I'm doing it is because, like Drew said, this was a movie that a lot of people, you either missed it, or this was the movie that introduced you to Jackie Chan. And I remember I had a friend in college who had all kinds of Jackie Chan films. We went through them over the course of a semester. First Strike was the one that stuck with me the, the most. I own it on DVD today. Love that film. Uh, If you're into cinematography, fight choreography, First Strike is the best. Like I was saying, that ladder fight sequence will blow your fucking mind, man. To this date, that movie came out in 97, still holds water to anything you'd see in Avengers or in any other big blockbuster, and it was all done organically. There's no trick photography there. It's just take after take, doing the stuff for real. So... Yeah, his his fight scenes are always yeah, fantastic. Because that's the thing, people forget that Jackie Chan is not a martial artist. He didn't he studied martial arts later. He is a physical comedian. He's more like Buster Keaton, who was his role model. So he he's more of a of a performer than he is a martial artist. So you get the more of that physical comedy side. So Drew, you pick up around, but man crush, you hold on to the belt and win the game. I appreciate your pity uh, score, your (laughs) pity points at the end there. (laughs) They're not pity points. I actually, I I do love First Strike, man. That is an absolute fantastic film. But you know what? So is talk radio. The guy with the communications degree just went with the action movie over the guy, (laughs) the radio movie. Well, see here that this is the other side of it. I discovered First Strike before I discovered talk radio. I went to college for radio broadcasting. I didn't discover talk radio until years later. I hadn't even heard of that movie. You would It was always, for me growing up, all my friends in college, it was always about pump up the volume. No one ever talked about talk radio. 20 years later, when I discover this movie, I'm like, how the hell did I miss this? But first strike, I caught on to that one early. So Drew, you get the points for the round. Man Crush, you win the game, though. All right, I'll take it. <laughs> I'm so sorry you didn't completely dominate me. I'll try. I'll try better. One next day, time. one day, I'll get a shutout. So, Drew, do, do you want Man Crush to completely dominate you? <laughs> no, no, no I, I appreciate the points. Thank you so very much. I'm so sorry. Well, Drew, you put up a great game, man. Thanks for playing. Uh, great picks tonight. Always a pleasure to have you on the show, Man Crush. Congratulations on yet another victory. I think eventually we're going to have to have somebody rip that belt out of your hands. I don't know who yet. We'll see. One day. 
<laughs> All right, Duelers. Well, if you've missed an episode, you can always go back on DuelingDecades.com, where you can subscribe to all of our shows on CastBox, on Spotify, really, wherever podcasts are available. And then while you're on the interwebs, head over to Facebook.com forward slash DuelingDecades, where you can check out all of our content online and then join our private group, where you can post some of your own retro memories as well. So until next time, Duelers, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everyone. Infirmary Media.